may be seated. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you all. It is the reason we gather, because He is on the throne. It's the only reason um, that we can live a life of joy and peace, is because our God is unshakable, unchangeable, and unstoppable. Amen. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Peninsula Grace. Um, we walk in through our text with you this morning. We'll be in Deuteronomy 6 and, and uh, large portions of the back end of Exodus. Uh, Jill and I, my wife, we just got back from a, a week in California visiting her family uh, on Friday. We were digging ditches in a vineyard in 95 degree heat. This morning I was fishing in my closet for my winter coat. This is a weird weekend for me, right? I think both ends are part of the curse, in my opinion. I think both extremes are not part of God's good design. Uh, but we, man, it was good to be back with you all. Uh, we are moving into one of my favorite seasons of the year, uh, and it's not because of the two minutes of fall weather that we get here, and apparently already went by us. We were afraid that the week we were going to be gone, we would miss all of fall. Um, but we, it's my favorite time of the year because it's my favorite sports season of the year. Baseball playoffs is just around the corner. Uh, football is back. The NBA is coming but most of all, men's college basketball. Growing up, I gave my heart to one and one only, and it was the Duke University men's basketball team. Uh, I don't know if the pastor's allowed to like somebody called the Blue Devils, but that's just kind of how it worked. Uh, so we, I, a couple, I, I have to confession here today, I loved Duke. I loved Duke with all my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and all of my strength. That was faithful to my one true love. I can truly say this girl loves her blue devils. Uh, that we, uh, I cried. I, I literally, I would cry when they would lose in the tournament. I would, when they would win an important game, I would run around screaming through the house, hugging the first person or pet that I could find. I loved Duke. I served Duke. I felt like it was my duty to do my part as a fan. So like these crazies, I would cheer every game. I bought all of the gear. I would do whatever I could to spur my team on to victory. And in 2005, my brother and I finally made it to the temple, the holy of holy in the college basketball world, Cameron Indoor Stadium, where we offered ourselves to Duke as living sacrifices. And here we are, chests painted, uh, hopefully getting on ESPN2. That, that was my hope there. Uh, there we are pictured with one of the basketball players. I think he told me he was one of the players. He was tall. I don't know. But we, uh, so we loved Duke. We served Duke. And uh, I rested in Duke's coach, Mike Krzyzewski. Uh, this is Mike's last year as Duke's coach. He has been their head coach for 45 years. That's eight years longer than I've been alive. Now, this is not opinion. This is fact. Mike Krzyzewski is the greatest basketball coach of all time, and I will fight you to the death. No, I will not do that. I, what's that? What? All right. The door's that way? If you want to go College Heights, Bible Chapel, there's lots of options, brother. All right. So we, uh, no, we, uh, so you could say that Coach K set the record for most wins of all time. Bobby Knight did not. Uh, that we, we, we know that uh, Coach K has the most 30-win seasons, the most Final Four appearances, the most first-round draft picks in the NBA, and the second most championships only to John Wooden. But that was black, back in the black and white days. That doesn't count. Uh, with Coach K at the helm, I could rest 
in not be stressed. He would win the game. He would find a way to win. You could say that I worshipped Duke. I'm here to repent of this. This was not the healthiest of all things in my life. Uh, and you can ask my wife. I am getting better. I'm in kind of sports rehab. We're, we're, we're moving forward. So ultimately, but it was empty, right? Like here I am on the, on the floor, body on the altar, worshipping at Duke's feet. But I, I ultimately it was empty, right? That worshipping a sports team, as great as they were, I couldn't ultimately trust them as great as Coach K was, they would lose games. They would lose championships. And even if they did win, that didn't make my life happy, right? That didn't set thing, every, everything right. The day after the championship is the next day. And it didn't sustain me. And in fact, it's just a random group of guys playing a game four time zones away. I'm not going to fulfill. It's not going to fulfill. But, the, but it points to the reality that you and I, listen, you and I were created to worship. That is, in the very fabric, in in our very DNA, we were created to worship. Ecclesiastes says that the eternity is in our hearts. Or the psalmist says, deep calls to deep. That you and I were created for worship. Something beyond us, something bigger than us, something transcendent, greatness. And this isn't all of us. Maybe for you it's not sports. But what do you think people are doing at the Taylor Swift concert, Right? There is forms of saying there's something that we want to give ourselves to, to celebrate, to worship. We see this all the time. We're looking for something beyond ourselves to put all of our worth, that's what worship means, our worth, to. We, we might do this in politics, that we're hoping for the right person or party in the White House that we can give ourselves to, to love and serve and find our rest in. That maybe for some of us, it's in relationships, that we're looking for that one person or that one family dynamic, or that child to come, or that community, whatever it is that we can give ourselves to fully that will finally love us the way that we wanted to be loved. We want to find someone to love, to serve, and to rest in. But like the Duke Blue Devils, these things all fall short, don't they? Has anybody found that mountain peak that satisfies under the sun, Right? Have we, ever, my, have we ever said, my team finally won enough games, I'm happy. I, I went to the best concert and everything's good. Now we finally got the right person in the White House. I finally have the right family situation, the right job situation. And now I can give myself fully to this thing and I'm happy. Well, we know that, of course, we, we continue to search for our purpose if we're looking under the sun We will only, the big idea this morning that I want to present to us in this text is that we will only be satisfied when we are fulfilling our true purpose. We are designed to worship, but we must find the right object of our worship or we will keep punting happiness. Until we find that, we'll be painting our chests like fools, cheering on false gods, chasing winds. We've been looking at this series called The Unfolding Promise, and and we're looking at God's big story, and this is the story of of what we're created for, what we've been designed to be as humans, and we're looking at it through the lens. We argued that the backbone of Scripture is this series of covenants, these agreements that God has made with humankind uh, throughout history. We've seen, if you've been with us, we looked at Adam and Eve and that original covenant in the garden, what he designed them to be as image bearers, to go into the world and be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, uh, worship him in the garden. Uh, We saw Noah, that he said, I'm going to, a restart is not enough. These people turned left, disobeyed me in the garden, and it's going to have to be more than just wiping them out and starting over. And the covenant was, I will never do that again. The next time that rainbow pointed the arrow up into the sky, says the next time the wrath will fall on me, not on humankind. And then we saw in the the person of Abraham, 
He said, this, this snake crusher that I promised to Adam is going to come through the nation of Abraham, and it's going to be through Abraham's nation, Israel, that I will bless all nations. And then last week, we started to look at this series. This will be the, uh, this covenant with Israel. Uh, Pastor Ross took us through the first part of this. We're going to finish it up this morning. We're going to look at this covenant that he makes with the nation of the people of Israel. And, and Ross took us through the, the Red Sea as the people of God were born out of slavery, a new creation, just like in Genesis chapter one, a new Adam, a new people. And at Sinai, he established his covenant with these people. And he gave them these commands and he said, this is how you should live as my chosen people. And this is the terms of the covenant. Obey these commands and you'll live. Disobey and you will be cursed. And so we see that at the heart of what Israel was created to be was to love their God, was to serve their God and to rest in their God. That's our outline this morning. But listen, this is not just Israel's call, is it? This is what you and I, as his image bearers, are all called into to love, to serve, and to rest in our God, in a word, to worship him. So let's, let's look at this together. First of all, Israel was created to love God. They were created to love God. So you remember, we said last week, God gives them these commands, and, and essentially, these commandments were instructions for how to truly be human, how to be the people that they were created to live out their purpose. And in Deuteronomy, we looked at Exodus, the first telling of the law. In Exodus, well, in Deuteronomy, there's a second telling. Deutero means second, onomy, law. So it's second law. It's not a new law. It's a second telling of the law. And that's why if you read through Deuteronomy, it's a retelling and a sermon form of the law, the commandments. And so we see Moses in, in, in Deuteronomy 5. He summarizes, he retells the Ten Commandments. And then in Genesis, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 6, he sums all of those commandments up in one sentence. He says in Deuteronomy 4, listen Israel, the Lord, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, excuse me, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and then here's the sentence. You want to know all the law? You want to keep all the law? One sentence, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. How we would, he would summarize what it means to be the people he's created them to be is love God. And it's important. And in fact, some have argued this is the central text of the entire Old Testament. And Jesus would, would agree. In, in Matthew 22, remember when the, they asked him, the leaders asked him, what's the, how would you summarize, what's the greatest command? And what, it's interesting, he answered what the greatest command was by giving two commands. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is how Jesus summarized the Mosaic law. So if the, if the whole of the law is kept in loving God, we have to ask ourselves uh, the, the question, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. All right, that was much stronger than the first service. They were still like, coffee. Uh, so we, we got to ask the question, what is love? Well, you can summarize it in three ideas. Love is affection, it's loyalty, and it's care. Uh, we see this throughout the, the biblical story, that, that it's affection. We see this in, in healthy relationships, right? If I, I have affection towards somebody, there's a fondness that I like them. I don't just have to do these things. I want to do them. I have a tender affection toward that person. There's loyalty. I will continue. Love doesn't stop Loving, right? It continues to love. That's loyalty. And then there's care. There's help and support. It, it manifests itself in action, in, in servitude. So we see that why, why are they called to love? Well, the, the, ten, the commandments themselves are a reflection of the nature of God. And if we're created in his image and we are to reflect his nature, then we are called to be who he is. 
And at the top of Sinai, God declares, this is who I am. In Exodus 34, he says, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding, teeming, fountains flowing in faithful love and truth. This is who our God is. I'm going to camp on that for a moment. Your God loves you. He's affectionate towards you. He doesn't just love us because he has to. He's a God who wants to love. He likes you. You know, God doesn't just love you. He likes you. That our God is loyal. He will always love us. His love never fails. It never gives up. And he will continue to care for us, to take care of us and support us and help us, carry us, really. And so we see this as image bearers. Therefore, we, as his representatives here on earth, we love because he is love, because he first loved us. So how do we do that? Well, in Deuteronomy, it's, we say, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, what does that mean to love him with all of our heart? Now, in our, um, our day and age, we kind of take the idea of heart and even love, and we associate it primarily with what? With feelings, right? I love you, baby. I really wish we would have thought about this before we did our engagement photos. What a missed opportunity that was. Um, that we say, man, I, we think of Valentine's Day and cuddles and my heart hurts. My, be still my heart. We're talking about a primarily emotional uh, ideas, but in the Hebrew mindset and language, heart had much more to do than just with feelings. The heart was the core of who you are. The heart was the center or the seat of the person. Feelings, yes, but also the mind that you think with and your, and your desires, your will. We would say that the mind encompassed your mind, your emotion, your will. And so we see here, he says, love the Lord your God with your heart. And then he says, your soul and your strength. Jesus later on says, your mind as well. These weren't like four distinct categories where you could love him with your mind, but not with your heart. These were overlapping uh, ideas, facets of a diamond, essentially to say, love God with your whole person. That, that was the idea. Or to say it this way, love is wholehearted devotion, all of us devoted to the king. And, and so we see that it would be all of our affection is toward our God, that all of our loyalty is to our God, all of our care is placed into the hands of our God. Or you could say it this way, that loving God is to give all of who I am to all of who he is, to give all of who I am to all of who he is. And what did we say earlier? That, 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 that this law, Jesus said, it's summed up in this one command. And so that we know that if we give all of who we are to our God, that's the heart of the first four commandments, to worship him alone, to give ourselves to him alone, to worship no other God, to rest, Sabbath rest in him alone. It keeps those first commands intact. But we also see that if our vertical relationship with God is one of love, then necessarily our horizontal relationships will also be marked by love. One of the central ways we love God is by loving our neighbor, by showing a affection to our neighbors by being loyal to care for our neighbors. And, and does that not summarize the, the rest of the, the Ten Commandments, right? That you're, you, you can't love your neighbor if you're murdering them. You cannot love your neighbor if you're cheating on, the, on, on, on your spouse, right? It's not loving your spouse. You cannot love somebody if you're stealing from them, coveting their things, so love, God and others, as Jesus would say, is the, is the summary of 
all that we're commanded to do and to be. The principle that we see here operating is that it's better to give than receive. It is better to give than receive. God says, I have saved you as a nation. I have given you all of the blessings already in Abraham. So now you're free to think about others, to think about me and the people around you. And just like that, for us as believers in Christ, all of our blessings, we have everything we need for life and godliness, the New Testament says. Therefore, we are free to give. We don't have to worry about receiving. We've received every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1 says. So now we're free to give. And in the same way that, that I loved Duke, right, with all of my heart, right, much more so, infinitely more so, Israel's called to love their God. And the, listen, the best thing for us is to take our eyes off of ourselves, put them on our God, and put them on others. But what does it look like to love God? We know that it's more than just a feeling. What does it look like to love God with all of us? Well, it's going to involve our actions, our lives, right? It's going to be giving and serving, which leads to the next thing that Israel was called to do. They were created to serve God. Number one, they're created to love God. Number two, they're created to serve God. So you look at the story of Exodus. In the first 18 chapters of Exodus, God rescues Israel and he gives them new life. Brings them out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. It was a picture of a birth canal, the newborn baby. Here's a new nation, God's people, God's chosen nation. And then he turns, and last week Pastor Ross walked us through these middle chapters where God gives Israel and now this, this new life. He gives them this new life and now the commands are to say, now that you're alive, this is how you should live. And the commandments are the instructions for how to live this new life. And then the rest of Exodus is the tabernacle instructions. And this is the record scratch, right? This is the place you've ever been doing the reading the Bible plan through a year, and you get to Exodus 25, and you really, things start to come off the rails, right? Like, this is the most boring thing I've ever read in my whole life. And designs of how to build the, the temple, and you're like, well, I don't even know what a cubit is, right? It's a, hard, it's a hard read to slog through, and then you get to Leviticus. So we, but this is a crucial part of the story to understand the, the, the unfolding promise that God is giving to us. The tabernacle was designed to be this new Eden. So the, the Garden of Eden language is all over the detailed instructions of the tabernacle. When he says to build it out of wood, it's this idea, we're back to a garden, and he says to carve out in this wood flowers and pomegranates and, and, and palm trees. The entrance of the temple, the, the tabernacle faced east, which was the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And in the middle of the Holy of Holies, these cherubim are guarding the holy space. Just like what did God tell the cherubim to do at the entrance of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out to guard it with that flaming ninja sword thing. We see that, that the, the, in, the, in the holy place is this lampstand and is designed to look like a tree symbolizing the tree of life. And in the Ark of the Covenant, the instructions, the tablets of what is right and wrong are in this Ark symbolizing the tree of the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. But most importantly, just like in the garden, where it says that God walked with man in the cool of the day, the most important thing about this space of the tabernacle is it's where God's presence dwelled. 
And we see this in this section of how to build it. It starts and ends with this concept. In Exodus 25, they are to make a sanctuary, a set-apart place for me. Why? So that I may dwell with them. That's what the word tabernacle means, to dwell with, a dwelling place. And then it's how it ends. In Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The big idea here is that God's dwelling in the tabernacle is a step toward restoring storing heaven and earth intersecting. Just like the Garden of Eden was to be the place where man walked with God, now the tabernacle is the new symbol of where God and man will meet. And if the tabernacle is the new Eden, then the priests are the new Adam. The priests are the new Adam. Remember, Adam was called to be the protector of the royal garden, to be garden the garden. And, And the priests, those who were from the line of Levi, the Levites, were to be the protectors of this holy space in the tabernacle. In fact, the same exact phrase that God tells Adam, he says to work and keep the garden, the only other time that phrase is used is with the Levites, to work and to keep this tabernacle. So what does that look like? They have two central jobs, these priests. The first one is to devote themselves fully to God. They are called to consecrate themselves, to give themselves fully to God for his work. If you remember when the Israelites go into the promised land, God gives each of the tribes a portion of land, right? Kind of doles that out. There's only one tribe that doesn't have a portion of land, and that's the Levites. Why is that? Well, Numbers 18 The Lord told Aaron, he's the high priest, you will not have an inheritance in their land. There will be no portion among them for you. Why? I am your portion and your inheritance among the Israelites. He says, Levites, you will not have a portion of the land because I am your portion, which I think is an upgrade, right, to land. He says, I am fully yours and you are fully mine, set apart from the people for my purposes, for my work. So this is their job, to devote themselves fully to whatever God calls them to. And what is that what is that, that he's calling them to? Well, number two is to bring others into the presence of God. To bring others into the presence of God. So as sinners, Israelites could not just walk into the tabernacle. Not because there's anything special about the, the wood itself or the materials themselves, but because it's where God dwelled. Dwelt. And so we know that that sinners cannot walk into the presence of a holy God. Just like Adam and Eve were barred from the Garden of Eden, God's holy space, when they sinned. So the main job of the priests was to to represent the people and bringing them back into the presence of God. So how would they do that? Well, they, just like the other Israelites, were sinners. So they couldn't just enter. And this is where the idea of offering sacrifices came in. Now, why these sacrifices? Why, Why are we shedding blood of animals and what's going on here? Well, Leviticus 17 tells us, verse 11, for the life of of a creature is in the blood. And I have appointed it to you to make atonement, that's a big word we'll talk about in a moment, on the altar, where they'd sacrifice, for your lives, in place of your own life, since it is the lifeblood that makes the atonement. So what's he saying there? Well, we know that an innocent animal's blood is being sacrificed, right, given for the sin of that person, on the altar. And, and funny enough, when we think of blood, we think of something that needs to be cleaned up. But, but it was actually the blood on the altar that cleansed that place so that it could become the meeting place, symbolically, of where God and man met together. The giving of, of a life. And, and what this created, that, that big word atonement we said, it actually it just means at one meant. When you hear atone, think at one. That God and man would be at one 
life through the death of one on their behalf. Does this not point us to Jesus? Symbolically, it's cleansed the people. We know that ultimately the animal blood cannot do that inherently, but this was so that they could walk with their God just like God had intended back in Eden. But here's the, the cool thing. The priest's job was actually a picture of what the whole nation's job was to be. They're called, last week, Ross read us the verse at Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests, a special treasure, a holy nation set apart from the rest of the nations. And what's their job to do? Well, just like the Levites were to represent the rest of the people and to be fully devoted to God, bringing the rest of the people into his presence, Israel is to be that kingdom of priests with the rest of the world. In Isaiah 49, he prophesies, I will also make you, Israel, a light for the nations, all tongues, tribes, and peoples, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth, inviting people back into the presence of God. And how would they do this? By giving themselves fully to God and doing what he said. And what did he say to do? Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. In a world of violence and chaos and bloodshed, he said, you're going to look different. You're going to be a people who love me, who serve me, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you are going to look so radically different that people will see the holy worship of God and be invited into his presence through the way that you obey my law. Now, Adam was called originally to go into the world. Remember what he said to Adam? He said, go and subdue the world, rule the, the creatures of the world, have dominion over it. That's king language, right? Dominion, ruling, subduing. But what would dominion, because we hear that word and we think of tyrants, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So what would, what would dominion and ruling look like? Well, we see this fuzzy picture in our story getting clearer here. That God's chosen nation was not to rule the rest of the world by political power or horses and chariots. It was not to go out like the Roman Empire or the Assyrian Empire and start taking captives in the name of Jesus. That's not what they were called to do. What did rulership look like? It looked like worship. Not a ruling nation, but a serving nation. Israel is defining what it means to serve. Remember he told Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing? He says, the way you're going to bless the world is by living a life set apart that loves me and loves others. So we see the way that serving God will necessarily once again travel to the horizontal, that we serve God by serving our neighbor. So I said, I served Duke by giving myself to them alone, declaring the glory of Duke to the nations. This is after they won in 2015, and we are having a good time in the Frankino house, right? Duke's number one! Duke's number one! I just scared somebody down the first row. We were celebrating their glory, right? And what he says is the church is the fulfillment of Israel. And you're going to hear in 1 Peter 2, as Peter's talking to the church, and he talks about that you're going to hear very similar language to Exodus 19. But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, some translations would say, a holy nation set apart, a people for his possession, just like the Levites, fully belonging to God, and God is fully ours 
And he says, you're not, it's not going to be a nation like America or Canada. It's going to be a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And why has he set us apart? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's our glorious job and privilege to go into the world and to say, Jesus is number one. We got that little foam finger thing with Jesus, right? To declare his glory to the nations of who our Savior and God is. And this is not, this is not because we're any holier than the rest of the world on our own, right? The Levites weren't any less sinful than the rest of the tribes. They were chosen by God to go and represent the rest of the people. But they too needed to be sprinkled with the blood. That you and I are no less sinners than the world around us. We're just hungry people like them who can show them where the bread is. We are blind people who can show them where the light is. And this is our call in Jesus. And the principle we see here is that it's better to serve than be served. It is better to serve. There's a better life out there for us than always trying to see if our needs are met, but to go out and serve the other people. Recently, I heard Ray Ortland Sr. He said it this way. There are two ways that we can enter a, wor- a room. Let's, let's kind of make this practical here. Two ways to enter a room. He says, the first way is to say, here I am, notice me. And this is our default station in the flesh, is to walk into a room and say, here I am, notice me. That's this guy, right? Check me out. What up? Right? And so you think about this morning, as you walked into the gym, or as we put our chairs up and we're standing around, what's our mindset? Are we just going, who's going to notice me? Who's going to come ask me how I'm doing? Who's going to help serve my needs? Or maybe the, the introverts are like, I hope nobody comes and sees me, but it's, it's still self-focused, so we're all sinners. Uh, that we are thinking, how, how, who, look at me, meet my needs this week. Are we th- as we walk into a room, are we thinking, look at me? Or the other way to enter the room is to go, there you are, I notice you. There you are, I notice you. Hey, it's good to see you. <laughs> Don't look at people like that. It's not, not normal. Uh, so we, the other way to enter the room is to go, man, I'm looking around. The chairs are up, and I'm looking around and going, who can I love? Who, who can I come and serve and ask how they're doing and help to meet? This, this week, as we walk into the room, are we going, here I am, look at me? Or are we going, there you are, look at you? That's what it means to be Christ-like. Jesus said, I, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so we go. But the only way, listen, the only way that we're going to be free to love and to serve, as Israel was called to, is if we see number three, that we're created to rest in God. We are created to rest in God. Remember we said each covenant has a sign. Uh, the, the sign of Noah. Or what was the sign of Noah? Rainbow. Rainbow. Sign of Abraham? <laughs> Circumcision. We won't do motions for that one. Uh, so we see the sign of the covenant with Moses or with the people of Israel is Sabbath. Sabbath. Now we know this is the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, but it's also the sign of the covenant. That, remember that each agreement with humans are gonna, is going to have a sign to ratify it. And you can hear very intense language in, in Exodus 31. He breaks this down. He says, the Lord said to Moses, he's speaking from Sinai, tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations so that you will know that I am the Lord who consecrates you, sets you apart. Observe the Sabbath. Why? For it is holy to you. It's set apart. Whoever profanes it must be put to death. If anyone does work on it, that person must be cut off from his people. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day there must be a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Anyone who does work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. 
The Israelites must observe the Sabbath, celebrating it throughout their generations as a permanent covenant. It is a sign forever between me and the Israelites, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So this, this is pretty intense, right? Well, it's actually in tabernacles. Um, but he, he's saying here, is, is God saying, take a day off a week or I will kill you? I mean, do you hear that language? You'll be cut off from your people. I will put you to death if you do not set apart this one, if you don't cease to work on this one day. Now, what is going on here? Is it just God takes naps as seriously as my wife does? Like, is that just, he's just really into that? We, got, we have to understand the context of, of what's being talked about here. Now, this was an agricultural society. Now, in our context today, man, we're like one day off. Shoot, we do double Sabbath, right? We're twice as holy right? We're going we're gonna to be like this little guy and just chill out for two straight days. Uh, many of us actually need to hear that he says work for six days, right? That's, that's the call that we need to hear in this one, where for us, every, we can often just be working for the weekend, right? And then we see the weekend as a time for luxury and for fun. But in an agricultural society, their very lives depended on working their fields and their animals, so for them to imagine to take an entire day off, to cease producing food to keep them alive, I mean, that was to risk starvation. That was sacrifice. That was, that was an act of faith. And God is calling them to says, trust that Yahweh God, that I am the one who created your life, and I am the one who sustains your life. And it is not through your own efforts to produce and provide. I am the one who brought order into your reality, and I'm the one who can maintain it and give you ultimate security. And this teaches us how to view our things, right? Like Israel, who was entrusting God with an entire day of work that we're called to trust him with our time, with our resources, with our relationships. And, and a reminder, a reminder that, that as we give these things to God, as, as they took a break, as they took a day off, this wasn't just, just, it wasn't just a lounge by the pool. This is a day given to the Lord and to remind them that they were loved not just for what they did, but for who they were. Say, Israel, I don't love you just because of what you're producing. I simply love you because you're mine. And to take a day to simply be. And this wasn't just for their own sake, but for those around them. In Exodus 20, uh, remember, this is, all these things relate to the horizontal. So this is how they're going to give rest to their neighbor. When God's giving this command in Exodus 20, he says this, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. So this rest was not just for them, but for the people around them, their children, their servants, their animals. And when they stopped to rest, it allowed the people around them to stop and rest as well. This was a way to love and to serve their neighbor and invite them into the same trust of Yahweh and to be able to say to those in their families and those who worked for them that I love you, that I value you like my God values me, not just for what you do for me, but who you are. There were two reminders that this Sabbath gave to them. 
and that God intended. He, he gives the law to them in Exodus 20, and then remember he retells it in, in Deuteronomy 5. And, and he gives two different reasons for keeping the Sabbath, that they work together. The first one in Deuteronomy 5, he says it's a reminder that they were slaves in Egypt, but God freed them. They were slaves in Egypt, but God freed them. Uh, look at verse 15. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. He says this is a reminder that I rescued you from a slavery to the Egyptians and freed you to be a new people set apart for me to live in the land flowing with milk and honey. Remember that when you take that break on Saturday. And he says the same thing to us as believers in Christ, right? It's a reminder. Our rest in Christ is a reminder that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1 says, and transferred us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son that he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that Jesus is our redeemer and savior, freeing people from all nations and inviting them into the eternal land of rest. But then the second reason, he says, is they couldn't add to God's complete work of, of creation. They couldn't add. It's, it's a reminder. And in, Je in Exodus 20, he goes back to the original intent of creation. This four, this is why you're going to keep the Sabbath. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, and he rested on the seventh. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. When God rested on the seventh day in that first week, it wasn't just a breather for God. It was a symbol that he was finished, that he had created everything that he wanted and needed to create. And he rested, that he was sitting on his throne in control of his cosmos. And when his people yielded to them a day, instead of saying, we're just going to look at how we can provide for ourselves, but trust you to provide, it was a way of recognizing God's sovereignty over them and over creation. And this is why we pray before we act, to recognize, God, you're in control, not me. It's not about my ability to provide, not my ability to be my savior or the savior for the people around me. You are God alone. You are on your throne. Essentially, God is saying at the end of those six days of creation, I said, it is finished. The work is done. And we hear those words echoed thousands of years later when Jesus, hanging from the cross, also says, it is finished. And just like we cannot add to God's work of creation, we cannot add to Jesus' work of recreation. That Jesus paid it all. He did for us what we could not do, and that's why he invites us in Matthew 11 to come to him, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you Sabbath. I will give you rest, a better rest than just one day off. This is the eternal rest in, in Jesus. And the point isn't just to take a nap. The point is to cease from our own efforts and trust in the finished work of Jesus. The principle here is that it is better to rest than be stressed. It's better to rest than be stressed. I rested in Coach K. I, I knew with him at the helm, we could win. No matter what, no matter how bleak it looked. Remember, we were losing to Maryland by 10 points with one minute left. And we make this crazy comeback, force overtime, and win. And I'm like, I knew you could do it, Coach K. I knew it. I'm a believer. And in the same way, well, we, not in the same way, different way. As, <laughs> careful, I'm never on that. As we follow Jesus, as he's the master of our lives, listen, there are going to be times when the score looks insurmountable, that the lead looks insurmountable, that no matter what, what mountain it looks like we're facing, we go, there's no way that God's going to get me through this. There's no way that Jesus is going to be able to sustain me through this one. We say there's no way. We come to trust 
We come to trust the one who leads us, that he'll tell us what to do, that he'll give us the strength to do what he's called to do, and he'll make a way where there seems to be no way. And that's the whole idea of faith, right? We were reading in our reading plan this last week in Hebrews 4. It invites us into this truer and deeper rest. It says, verse 3, for we who have believed enter the rest. How do we enter this rest in Christ? By faith. That's the only way to do it. He says in verse 10, for the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his at the end of those six days. Let us then make every effort to enter into that rest. This is a call to not cease from activity, right? We, we were just said they were called to love and to serve God with every ounce of their person. It was a Dallas Willard who said, we are not called, there's a difference between effort and earning, as Christians, there's lots of effort that we put into life. But we, we lay down the idea that we can earn God's love and favor and blessing and salvation by doing something, by adding anything to Christ's finished work. And as we cease from our attempts at earning and rest in what Jesus earned for us, we can now give effort that is driven by the Holy Spirit. And we can release the anxiety of trying to control our own lives and give ourselves to him, to love, to serve, and to rest in. We said the big idea is that you and I are created to worship created to worship something bigger than a basketball team, something bigger than a concert, something bigger than your, your job or your, another person, any other circumstance under the sun. That's only going to come. Our, our satisfaction will only come when we worship the right object, where purpose is fulfilled in the way that we worship God. But we know what Israel's called to. Have you read the rest of the Old Testament? They don't do it, do they? Israel fails over and over again to love God rightly, to serve God rightly, and to rest in him alone. They're breaking the Ten Commandments before Moses even gets down the mountain, right? And so we know that that didn't throw God off, and it doesn't throw him off when we fail to love and to serve and to rest in him. Because that's not where God put his hope in the covenant. And next week, we're going to meet this man. He says, I'm going I'm to bring a king who will represent my nation and will be for the nation what the nation could never be for themselves, a priest king. And we're going to meet a man after God's own heart. But that man is going to still point us toward the man. You pray with me. Father God, we, we hear Israel's story. Man, what a calling to be set apart from the nations, to be chosen as your special possession for this amazing job of, of showing the world how worthy you are of worship by loving you, by serving you, and resting in you. And Lord, we know that the rest of the Old Testament is littered with their own failure. God, we look at our own lives and we see that what you've called us to, to love you, to serve you, to rest in you. And I can just look at this last week and see how many times I've fallen short. And Father, we know that's not where our hope is. And we know that these covenants lead us to the one true covenant keeper who did love you with all his heart, his soul, his mind and his strength, who came to serve and not be served and fully rested in your promise, dying on our behalf and rising again so that we could in him, in Jesus, be the people that you called us to be. Lord, that we can love and serve and rest now that Jesus has given us this new life. Lord, would you help us as we go this week and we walk into the room that we would be a people like Christ who don't say, here I am, please notice me. But to be a people who say, there you are. I notice you. And to give our lives in service for the King as we worship you alone, resting in your finished work on our behalf. 
want to offer our lives. Like those Levites, it's not because we're any more special or holy than anybody else, but because we come in the name and the blood of Jesus. And that's the only reason that any of our offerings are acceptable, Father. And it's in a few moments as we consider the bread and the cup that we would remember that it's your innocent blood shed for us, your body broken for us, your finished work for the death and resurrection that we can come as acceptable offerings with our lives and you'll form us into the people that you called us to be, a light to the nations, bringing your salvation to the ends of the earth. It's in the name of Jesus that we love, that we serve, and that we rest. In his name we pray, amen.